Welcome to 10 Minute Tech Comb. This is Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and I'm very excited to introduce you to today's guest. My name is David Dylan Thomas. I am a content strategy advocate at Think Company, an experienced design firm. I'm also the author of Design for Cognitive Bias, coming out this summer from a book apart. David Dylan Thomas's new book explores how both users and designers bring their cognitive biases to their interactions with designs. He'll talk with us today about what bias is, how we can recognize it, and how we can build systems that counteract it. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, David. I'm excited to talk with you. I find these kind of cognitive biases really interesting. And you yourself, you describe yourself as a guy who won't shut up about cognitive biases. So why is it so important for us to talk about these? I mean, if we think of our role as designers or just really anybody who makes anything, like a lot of our work is around helping people make decisions. And if we don't really understand how people make decisions, like if we assume that people make decisions rationally, we're kind of going down the wrong path. Like a lot of decisions aren't very rational. They're very emotional and they're very influenced by a lot of these biases. So the better we understand how people actually make decisions, the better we'll be at our jobs. Great. And uh, can you kind of define sort of what is a cognitive bias and maybe give us a couple of examples of how they play out in design? Absolutely. So uh, a cognitive bias is really just a shortcut your mind is taking. We have to make something like a trillion decisions a day. Like even right now, I'm deciding how to modulate my voice or what to do with my hands or how to sit, right? And if I had to think really carefully about every single one of those decisions, I'd never get anything done. So most of that happens on autopilot, which is usually a good thing. But sometimes those shortcuts lead us to errors, and we call those errors cognitive biases. So a really fun one is called illusion of control. And if you are playing a game that involves the role of a die, if you need a high number, you'll roll that die really, really hard, right? But if you need a lower number, you'll roll really gently. Right. I've done that. And if you think about it for two seconds, it's obvious it makes absolutely no difference how hard you throw the die, but we like to think we have control. And so we embody that by how we roll the die. And that's just a typical shortcut mistake we make that's relatively harmless, but I, I like that example. That's great. And so as far as design goes, when we're talking about, say, the design of websites or products, how might some of these cognitive biases either be built in or uh, be experienced kind of by users using the product? Sure. So there's a whole slew of biases that fall under the topic of, it's called cognitive fluency. And it's the idea that if something looks hard to read, we'll assume whatever it's talking about is hard to do. Uh, so if I have like a pancake recipe that is like really dense and just a big chunks of text, even if I don't actually read the recipe, I'll take one glance at that and assume that making pancakes is impossible, right? And I'll give up on it. But if I see the exact same words, but they're actually broken up into smaller chunks and there's nice big pictures in between them, I'll glance at that, think, oh, that looks easy to read. I will bet that making pancakes is easy to do and I'm more likely to make the pancakes, right? So how we design the experience even if the content is precisely the same, will have a big influence on how willing a user is to engage with that experience. I like that example because it kind of justifies me emphasizing design so much for students for, say, technical instructions. Because if it looks easier, then people are more likely to read the directions. And it's nice to have some empirical support for the things that I teach. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to stress, the content should also be easy to read. That makes a cognitive difference too. But when I'm doing um, a content audit, I always make a distinction between easy to read 
versus like actually using plain language. So looking easy to read is important. That's like scannability. But when I actually do read it, it's got to actually be plain language because otherwise you're just wasting my time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But those are separate things that relate with each other. Exactly. So you mentioned... You mentioned this when you're doing a content audit, do you specifically look for these cognitive biases? I mean, indirectly, like the reason I'm looking for scannability is because I know that a user will not engage with that text if it doesn't seem like it's going to be easy to scan. By the same token, I'm also looking for plain language because there's evidence to suggest that the more plain language something is, the more likely, honestly, the more believable, <laughs> right, the actual text becomes. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these biases have to do with people liking stuff that's easy to process, right? And we'll always opt for the thing that's easy to process. So if something rhymes, it's easier to process and it's actually more believable. If something is easier to read, it's easier to process. So we're more likely to act on it and, and trust it. Um, and there've been actual uh, experiments where they've looked at health information around things like trying to get women who are pregnant to stop smoking while they're pregnant. And when things were delivered for this group, I think when things were delivered at a third grade reading level, as opposed to how they were usually delivered, which was at a, was at a much higher uh, reading level, women were much more likely to not smoke during pregnancy and then after as well. So these, these things really do make a difference in behavior. That's interesting. You know, I'm reminded there was a study um, that I read about in a popular press book that was they tried to get students to eat healthier. And it was something like, you know, put five vegetables on your tray a day for, you know, healthy, like if they built the rhyme in with tray and day. And when they focus grouped it, the students were like, oh, that's so stupid. I hate it. But then they did it more like they actually did that thing later. So are there any other like rhyming studies? I'm really interested in that particular thing. Oh, totally. And I agree. It's silly. I feel silly telling people this, but, but what I tell them is it's silly, but it works. So click it or ticket was a campaign. So this is around getting people to actually use their seatbelts more. So it's a public health concern. And the first phase was purely uh, legislative. So they put laws in the books that said you could get a ticket if you're not wearing your seatbelt. And that helped for sure. More so with older drivers, not as much with younger drivers. Then they added Click It or Ticket, which was a campaign rolled out in different states under different kind of names. But that rhyming aspect, that, that marketing aspect really moved the needle for younger drivers so much so that like if you do the math around like the percent increase in people who use their seatbelts and you match that to what we know about hey every percent increase you get of someone buckling their seatbelt saves this many lives it ends up being like four thousand lives saved because of rhyming so it's silly but it saves lives <laughs> yeah well i've even said that kind of ironically as i buckle my seatbelt. but you know it's like i'm i'm doing it you know so i'm following the advice of the click it or ticket slogan yeah one of the things i really like about your approach is that you know we have these cognitive biases and it's not that people are stupid it's just that our minds work this way and that it's for all kinds of reasons to take off cognitive load because we want things like certainty and ease of processing. So it's not necessarily that sort of these cognitive shortcuts are bad, but they do have a lot of downsides. And you talk about this, especially with, say, sexism and racism, that, you know, these cognitive biases can lead to very sexist and racist effects. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. So... There is, of course, explicit bias where you have people who genuinely hate black people, who genuinely hate women. If you ask them, they will tell you this. 
Thankfully, the majority <laughs> of racism and sexism out there isn't this explicit conscious, I'm going to go out and hurt somebody. A lot of it is a very thoughtless pattern recognition. Iris Bonnet gives this amazing talk called Gender uh, Equality by Design that kind of turned me on to all of this. But the point she makes is that people get a pattern in their head about who should be a web designer, who should be a scientist, right? And that pattern is built up over watching television or people in their lives or whatever. And so if I'm hiring a web designer and I see a name at the top of that resume that doesn't click with the picture I have in my head of who should be a web designer, which is generally like a skinny white dude. Even if you were to ask me, hey, are skinny white dudes better at web design? I'd say, no, that's ridiculous. But because I have that pattern in my head, when I see that name that doesn't match skinny white dude, I start to give that resume the side eye. And in study after study, when you have identical resumes and one has a male name at the top and the other has a female name at the top, if it is a male dominated industry, the female name is far less likely to make it further in the process, even though the content of the resume is precisely the same. So there's plenty of ways those shortcuts are really hurting us when it comes to race and gender. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in a talk you gave at UX Y'all that the Amazon algorithm was even sexist because it was working off of the work that human job hirers had done. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And this is a case where the computer had a pattern, right? So uh, a few years ago, um, Amazon created this hiring bot that was sort of helping inform hiring decisions. And what they discovered was that it was really only recommending men. And so they tried to figure out why it was doing this. And so they looked back and they saw that, okay, well, how did we train this AI? Well, we trained it by having it look at the past 10 years of resumes. And guess what most of them had in common, right? They were mostly guys. And so the AI took one look at that and said, gee, you sure must like dudes and just kept recommending dudes. And, and what I find fascinating about that story is if you had said, hey, we're going to create an AI that's going to help predict who would be good at their job and say, we're going to train it on the last 10 years of data. I'd say that's a terrible idea. If on the other hand, you were going to say, hey, we want to discover where the biases are in our hiring practices. We're going to feed our last 10 years of resumes into a hiring bot and see who it recommends. That's a great idea, right? Because <laughs> now you can detect where those biases are. And I, I think that training AI, the conventional wisdom around training AI really only scales bias. Whereas if we open our minds to the notion of, well, what do we actually want this thing to do? And what kind of worlds do we want it to create? You can get a little more creative. Well, I like your point about using the AI to kind of identify our own bias. And, you know, earlier you said, well, a lot of people, they won't admit to or won't acknowledge or, or recognize, say, sexist or racist ideas that they have. And those seem particularly dangerous. That's where you get all those people who are like, I'm not racist. But then they end up hiring the skinny white guy for the you know, web designer position. And I like your point about kind of using the AI to sort of identify and overcome those biases. What are some strategies that we can use to kind of help ourselves and our users to overcome these dangerous effects of cognitive bias? Sure. So the the first <laughs> the first bit of bad news is that you can't like unbias yourself. Like that is a project that takes many, many years, you know, and therapy. Like there's that is a very, very long-term solution because those things are really just, most decisions happen below the threshold of conscious thought, like 95% of them. You don't even realize you're making the decision. So rather than focus on that, I mean, you should do the work, but rather than focus on that in the short term, there's a couple of things you need to do. One is 
you need to sort of design in a way that accounts for the fact that I'm going to make a bad decision if I even see that name at the top of the resume. So anonymous hiring becomes one design approach to say, we are going to remove that design element of the name and any other biasing information like the college you went to, or if you even went to college, because A, that's not actually helping me decide who to hire. Like knowing the name doesn't help me figure out, are you qualified? And B, like I know these things can be triggering and influencing in ways that are undue. So it's almost like signal to noise. It's like, let me just focus on the signal. Like, you know, what, uh, what, what are you good at? What kind of, what experience do you have? That kind of thing. So that's one way to use design to sort of basically remove the biasing elements and the unnecessary elements from the design. In a way, it's just better design. And then from a process standpoint, it's really important that you find ways to challenge your own perspective. And a lot of that involves inviting other perspectives to the design process. So for example, there's a thing called red team, blue team, where you have a blue team might take a design as far as say wireframe. So they do the research, they come up with the idea, they come up with the general design of what they want to do. But then a red team will come in for one day and just go to war with the blue team and really try to pick apart what are all those false assumptions the blue team was making? What are all the things that, that they missed that might actually cause harm if this thing goes forward that the blue team couldn't see because they were kind of wrapped up in their own confirmation bias and kind of really in love with their own idea and just couldn't see it? So it's not so much about removing biases as it really is about adding complementary biases from different perspectives to make sure that you're seeing all the angles. No, that's great because, you know, you gave an example again in your talk that even if I tell you, you know, you're going to use this particular bias and I try to pay you money yeah. to not use that bias, the people will still do it. Like that's how powerful some of these biases are. So kind of making our systems that account for the potential of these biases and have ways to kind of thwart them system-wide instead of in the individual themselves. Yeah. And that's really the key word there is system, right? It's one thing to know about these practices, but they really need to be embedded in the process. Uh, Daniel Kahneman calls it QA for decision-making, right? The same way that we want to make sure that code isn't buggy before it goes out. So we do QA on that website and we hire people who that's their job and their only job, right? They have no stakes in the outcome. They're just there to make sure this thing works. The same philosophy could be applied to decision-making, design decisions, business decisions, whatever kind of decisions are, that are going to affect people. And you say, okay, well, how did you arrive at that decision? And then you pick that apart and say, well, you relied on this information here. Are you sure that information isn't biased? The person who is making this decision, well, are they incentivized to make that decision in a way that's going to like benefit them and not everybody else, right? Like, And really break that down. But that has to be a part of the process, which is another way of saying somebody has to pay for it. Like That has to be in the budget. You have to hire people where this is what they do. And we are not going to make design, design decision X until the red team is weighed in, until this has happened, right? It's checks and balances, right? But we don't usually think of that in design, especially in tech, because we're very used to this, like the whole, you know, move fast and break things philosophy, right? Like it's this notion of, oh, we will figure that out just by iterating. And some things you will figure out by iterating, but no matter how often you iterate, your own biases are still going to be in there because you're the one doing the building and the measuring and the learning. Right. You might just iterate within your own bias and yeah, make it even more extreme. Exactly. Exactly. There needs to be a step in that process where it's like, wait, check yourself, right? <laughs> like bring in other people who are actually going to be on the you know business end of any bad decision and have them weigh in on, oh, this is a bad idea or this is a good idea. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure.